0: Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast, presented by me, Adam Wagner. I'm a human rights barrister, that's a lawyer, and this podcast is all about human rights. I've got three things that I want this podcast to do. Discuss the most important human rights issues of the day, not shying away from the difficult and controversial ones. Explain important concepts, no jargon if we can avoid it. And thirdly, answer the key question. How can human rights make us better as individuals and as a society? The podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. Goldsmiths has open days on Saturday the 5th of October and Wednesday the 6th of November where you can meet their law academics and find out more about studying their law programme. You can get involved in the podcast and I really am keen for people to feedback and to propose questions and comments and please do follow Be Human Podcast on Twitter or email me at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. If you want to support the podcast and make sure that we can carry on discussing the most important human rights issues of the day, please do contribute through our Patreon which is patreon.com. Forward slash better human, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a hundred people give five dollars a month, which is about four pounds, you with you'll support the podcast running Fortnightly for um for certainly covering the costs. And if you want to sponsor an episode, if you or your business wants to get a message in to an episode, you can email sponsor at betterhumanpodcast.com. Today's topic is freedom of expression and human rights. The right to free speech is the lifeblood of democracy. It's fundamentally important and has been at the heart of every important rights law um, for hundreds of years. But today, mainly because of the rise of social media and the fact that we are all now, out of the blue almost, speaking all the time to very large groups of people, has created an enormous clash of rights people saying that they're being harmed by particular kinds of speech versus others saying that their right to free speech is being curtailed what's the right answer well we've got an absolutely brilliant guest to discuss that jody ginsburg who is the ceo of index on censorship which is a non-profit that campaigns for free expression worldwide and publishes work by censored authors An artist, Um, Jody is also a journalist. Um, She was previously foreign correspondent and the UK bureau chief for Reuters. Um, She remains a regular media commentator on free expression issues, and she also sits on the council of the Global Free Expression Network, IFEX, and the board of trustees for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. A fun fact about Jody is that she always wants to be a journalist. And as a child, she'd make her friends play what what she called the news, which was then performed to long suffering parents. That must have been as a, as a long suffering parent, that must have been really fun for them. Um, she dreamed of being a foreign correspondent to tell stories that were not being heard. Um, so, welcome, Jody. Thank Thanks very much for joining the podcast. First thing I wanted to ask you is just to tell us a bit about Index on Censorship, which I think is an amazing organisation. But tell us why, tell the listeners why they should um, also think it's an amazing organisation.
1: Index on Censorship is nearly 50 years old now. It was established back in the 1970s as a way to give back voice to dissidents and others in places like the Soviet Union who were being censored to let them tell their own stories. So we have, for the past nearly, as I say, 50 years, been publishing the work of individuals like Vaclav Havel, Nadine Gordimer, and others writing about censorship and the effect of censorship. And in addition to that, we campaign on freedom of expression issues across all sectors. So we look at media freedom, we look at academic freedom. Increasingly, we're looking at online speech and restrictions online. And thinking about the effect of censorship in the arts.
0: Great. Um, and today we we're going to talk about free expression. Um, and this is a always a hot human rights issue. It has been turbocharged since um, millions um, and billions of people became, all of us almost overnight, online publishers of speech. Whereas before, if you wanted to get in front of a lot of people, you would have to be in a newspaper or on TV or stand in front of a crowd. And and the the landscape's completely changed. So it, we thought it'd be good to have a conversation which looks back on the history of freedom of expression, looks at the current protections, and then we'll talk about some of the, the issues which arise, um, which affect pretty much everybody in modern society. And it's one of those rights which a lot everybody's affected by but people don't understand very well so let's start by looking at where our free right to free expression comes from how did it evolve
1: well let me start by saying you're right to say that we're really thinking about free expression in a way that we've never had to do before because so many more of us are able to put our freedom of expression in a form where it can be reviewed, held up to scrutiny. And in the past, as we've said, that's been the purview of perhaps writers, academics, intellectuals, and now anybody can say whatever they like all of the time, supposedly. Um, And that's creating uh, huge challenges, but also massive opportunities. So in the past, I think a lot of the way in which we've thought about rights, if you like, was actually much more about restrictions. So states uh, sought to restrict what could be said for the safety of the state or the safety of the religious grouping that was perhaps in charge. So if you think most of the laws uh, and norms that we had around speech in in the early years of, of democracies evolving was about restrictions, about what people would say because that threatened the safety of of the state or the religious grouping if you think about individuals like Galileo so we ended up with these black what we would call blasphemy laws so insulting religions saying anything that wasn't the religious line
0: yeah And, and Galileo was in trouble for um saying the earth revolved around the sun exactly which was a problem for the pope
1: yes and so nowadays you would think It seems utterly ridiculous. that something that we have now agreed as scientific provable fact would be so heretical that somebody ought to be killed for it, punished for it. it. Seems ridiculous now, but that continues to be the case in many countries that if you criticize a religion or do anything that is not sanctioned by your religious body, you may be punished for it, including with death. But increasingly over the years, what has evolved are protections for freedom of expression. So the right, enshrining your right to be able to criticise the status quo, to challenge the status quo. And obviously, most famously, that's enshrined in the First Amendment in the
0: United States. Um, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's pretty simple.
1: It's very simple (laughs) and essentially has made free expression one of the founding principles of the United States. And I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this. That doesn't mean actually in practice that you can say whatever you like in the United States, although I know a lot of people think that's the case. There are still restrictions and let's come on and talk about those. But that is an interesting amendment or an interesting element of the Constitution because what it essentially says is the state cannot pass laws pretty much that freedom of expression. In other words, you as a citizen can express your opinion freely. If we come on and think about where freedom of expression is protected in a universal context, you would look at something like uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 19, which also protects freedom of expression.
0: Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Um, So I suppose going back to in, in modern times, we start... After the Second World War, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was the um, pretty much the whole world, um, with exceptions, coming together and agreeing a set of principles, effectively not, and, and they're not, they don't bind states in the sense that you can't go to a court and enforce them necessarily, um, and certainly not at the time. But we have Article 19, which says everyone has the right to freedom of, freedom of opinion and expression.
1: And again fairly simple, basic standards through which we can, we derive rights in the UK and internationally to protect our freedom of expression. Over time, the laws that have derived, or if you like, the standards that have derived from principles like Article 19 have become more qualified. So, So if you look at the European Convention on Human Rights, which establishes a similar set of principles for European Union countries and and some countries beyond, then you start to get into the realm of uh, more qualifications. So Article 10, which is the element that protects free expression in the European Convention does have more carve outs in terms of what states can reasonably restrict.
0: So so I'll I'll read out um, the the relevant bits of Article 10. Um, So it has sort of two sides to it. It's like like if you imagine it like scales. And on the one side of the scales is everyone has the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference by a public authority. So that's not... Dissimilar to the restriction on states abridging freedom of speech, um, but then it has the other side of the of the scales. The exercise of these freedoms, since it carries with it duties and responsibilities, may be subject to such restrictions or penalties as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society. And then it goes on to um, list a number of different. Um, ways in which the, um, restri- the restrictions can work um, if they include this for example the protection of morals or the reputation and rights of others that sort of defamation law so it, it is a kind of shopping list of res- potential restrictions.
1: And it's left up to then the states to interpret that as they see fit and that's where you get into this much more grey area a much more contentious area about what we consider to be reasonable restrictions.
0: Yeah. And and, and I suppose the other important thing to understand about the European Convention, um, which we signed up to as a state, as the UK in 1953, is that from a couple of decades later, you could, if your rights were being um, breached by the state, say a hospital or a local government or a, a politician, you could take that to a court in Strasbourg and get those enforced. And then the UK has agreed to abide by that. Um, and that was, that was the position, that was where you, we got our human rights from until 1998. And then something changed. So
1: in 1998, we introduced the Human Rights Act, which essentially ported many of the um, agreements that we had made and signed up to part of the European Convention, but brought them into UK law. So... One of the interesting conversations to be had now as we're thinking about what happens as we leave Europe is what happens to the Human Rights Act and the importance of maintaining maintaining our commitment to universal human rights, which includes things like freedom of expression.
0: Yeah. So, so when we leave the European Union, we lose the... And this is another, another instrument um, that, you know, and it's no, no surprise people get confused by, by all of this, but the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, which also protects freedom of expression. But we don't lose the European Convention because that's a separate treaty and it's unaffected. It's, not, it's loosely connected to the EU in that new EU members have to sign up to it, but it's not the same. And we, so we, when or if we Brexit, we won't leave that. And we also keep the Human Rights Act, which brought these rights into our law, into our local laws. Um, but we've got where we end up with is this heavily qualified right to freedom of expression which is qualified by, you know, public morals, the reputation of others, etc. Um, so that's where we end up.
1: Yes, that's right. And and I think it's really important that people do understand that because I think often there's there's confusion, there's huge confusion and particularly because now we are able to communicate in so many different ways and so publicly to so many people. There is a great deal of confusion about what can and can't be said and what can legitimately be restricted by law and what is being restricted, for example, simply through terms of service that a social media platform might have or or indeed by kind of social norms, if you like. So I think it's really important to understand that, particularly as we're in discussions about you know we've heard talk about people ripping up the human rights act so it's really I think important that people understand what is currently protected in a way that is really positive for everybody's rights
0: yeah and while we're on the positive side and I, and one thing I really want to um, get out of this podcast is is thinking about the, the values and principles behind all these technical laws um, and, and protections and I suppose I should have asked this question at the beginning, why have free speech? What's the point of it?
1: Freedom of expression, to me, and not just to me actually, the United Nations have even talked about this, is is really a bedrock freedom. It's a fundamental freedom. If you think about it, without the ability to speak freely, how do we advocate for the other rights? So how do we advocate for the right to love and marry whomever we choose or to practice our religion or our freedom from religion or to advocate for political rights. So without freedom of expression, it is impossible to do those things. And if you think about all social movements over history have relied on the ability of individuals to speak openly about how they want things to change.
0: And I suppose that all, Autocratic or uh, uh, um, non-democratic governments, the first thing they've done is is shut down newspapers, shut down free expression, prosecute people for saying the the wrong thing, the wrong thing being the thing which attacks them.
1: Limits on speech and expression are are always the hallmarks or the indicators of a regime that is becoming less democratic or is authoritarian so as we are looking at the world today we're increasingly seeing a number of supposedly democratic countries taking on authoritarian characteristics and one of the first indicators of that being the case is they target individuals for their expression so if you think about countries like turkey for example where hundreds of journalists are in jail those kinds of actions are are absolutely typical of authoritarian regimes
0: and just to boil it down why
1: because controlling the narrative is one way that you can control the people you control dissent by controlling the narrative and that means taking control for example of the newspapers control of the broadcasters control now of the internet so increasingly seeing for example countries resorting to to simply turning off the internet to turning off communications mechanisms when they're concerned about unrest amongst the people or indeed that people are voicing opinions that do not match the status quo and if you think about it that's very much relates back to the Galileo motivation right the Galileo motivation was this guy is saying something that ultimately challenges the bedrock of society and the power structures that exist so he must be quietened and that is continues to be view of authoritarian societies the people who say things that challenge the status quo who want something different who want women to have the right to vote who want certain religious minorities to have more rights those authoritarian regimes typically handle those demands for change by shutting down the means through which those people advocate for change in other words their speech so let's
0: zoom into the uk um which is a pretty good country for free speech is that fair to say
1: it is a good country for free speech and i think the i think one of the key things is that we should never take those freedoms for granted it's very they're very hard won, but quite easily lost because we sort of are lulled into this idea that well if you you, you know if you restrict in this area then that will be okay and you often end up then finding you've opened the door to far greater restrictions but yes of course largely we have a uh, free and vibrant press we are able to freely express ourselves largely but we do have some restrictions about what can be said
0: yeah and and those restrictions are growing in the age of the internet is that is that fair to say
1: it's absolutely fair to say that they're growing in the age of the internet because policymakers, lawmakers are looking at ways to cope with some of the negative aspects that have been the natural corollary of lots of people being able to express their opinions to a wide range.
0: So if we're going to look at the laws which potentially restrict free speech let's start with The communications act um, because that's the one that I dislike the most Um, and I'm being very subjective here Um, but but what that does is it it prevents people sending a message and I'm quoting by means of a public electronic communications network um, that is grossly offensive or of an indecent obscene and menacing character Um, so what does that law mean?
1: So that law is really an updated version of a much older law that was really intended actually to deal with he- what I would call heavy breathers. So I know these days we don't use the phone very much but it, you know in the olden days um people would call up and you would have an operator um who would put, place your call and those operators would often be the receive on the receiving end of menacing Communications. In other words, people calling them up and saying obscene things or offensive things um, about their person, you know, lewd sexual innuendo and so on. And so, really, it existed to protect those individuals against that kind of behavior. And in the modern age, it was expanded to include electronic communications, in other words, email. So somebody sending you something directly, grossly offensive. So if I sent something to you, Adam, uh, with rude pictures in it or so on, it, it could be prosecuted under this act. But of course, what it didn't take into account was social media so the
0: clues in the dates right 2003
1: 2003 so well before i mean i think facebook's only been around for 15 years so predates even facebook's establishment what it didn't account for that act is really about person to person so me harassing effectively you with unwanted communication doesn't take into account the idea that we might be able to post messages that lots of people can see including people whom you never thought might see it or it be intended for so in other words I could post a message that's really intended for my mates where I make an extremely off-color joke or remark that you might find offensive or grossly offensive but I I didn't think or intend for you to see it you could still be prosecuted and people are under this um, under this element of the communications act
0: And back in 2003 when you said viral it meant that you were suffering from a disease and there wasn't this concept or probably wasn't even the idea that you could we could have that exchange where I post a stupid message on a WhatsApp group with four of my friends and one of my friends screen grabs it and sends it to another friend who then puts on his Facebook profile and which is then put on Twitter and then it ends up being seen by millions of people within about well, it could be a few minutes in in today's world, and that is a inc- that is a fundamentally materially different scenario to me sending you a grossly offensive email. Yes, because one is targeted, the,
1: yeah. right? One is me deliberately trying to cause you essentially harm or distress, um, and the other is much more about. In ad- something that, that that may well be inadvertent. So you may say or do something that I would consider offensive, but many other people might see as just simply funny. And that has meant that increasing numbers of people have been caught in the net for making uh, off-color jokes about you know getting frustrated because the airport um, is, is not open and making jokes about wanting to, to blow it up. or
0: you know, so, so should we just... Th- remember that um that the twitter joke trial as i think it was ended up being called um where the exactly as 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 you described the um somebody on twitter said i'm going to if nottingham airport doesn't sort itself out i'm gonna blow it up and it was a and it was a joke and it was and he was prosecuted under the section section 127 of the communications act as a grossly offensive, malicious, um, and well, sorry, and a, a menacing message, which was uh, you know effectively a terrorist threat, and it went to appeal, and the judges couldn't decide which what the answer was, so it had to go to another appeal, and eventually um, he succeeded on a, on free expression grounds, but not under the Human Rights Act. Actually, he he succeeded under the common law, which is something we haven't spoken about. But in effect, is the is the same, um, and it goes back before the Human Rights Act.
1: But there are, and that's right, and you know, I'm pleased by that judgment. But if you think about it, you know, in a in a, a sort of rational democracy, it was should be possible to look at those such tweets and be able to say, you know, quite easily that that should never have come to court because it was quite evident that that was a joke, should have been quite evident, and so. The fact that it got as far as it did is concerning and there have been cases where people have been successfully prosecuted for making um, off-color jokes on Twitter or social media. So the most recent example would be the case of a YouTuber who goes by the name of Count Dankula who um, shared with his followers a, a social media video of him teaching his girlfriend's dog to do a Nazi salute. Um, and he was also, um, found guilty under communications law, um, of gross offense. Now that I think brings us on to questions about how people are targeting speech because communications act and the malicious communications act, which, which does similar things, um, are one way of restricting speech, but they're not the only mechanism for restricting Speech and and we also have speech restrictions related to race and religion and, and so called protected characteristics. Um, so that's contained in the Racial and Religious Hatred Act, for example. Um, there's also restrictions around expression that sit within the Public Order Act, for example. And one of the interesting and, and things. The, and the
0: public, sorry, just the Public Order Act, we're talking about stirring up racial or religious or some other kind of hatred based on what are called protected characteristics. So if you are gay or you are um, black or you are Christian and someone is um, trying to stir up hatred against you, you they can be caught by that law.
1: Yes, that's right. And they're they're called the sort of so-called stirring up offences, but they, they most, when we talk about hate speech in the UK, I think there's often a misconception that there's something called a hate speech law. There isn't a hate speech law. We don't have hate speech laws. We have a number of different laws that contain provisions that allow restriction of speech based on stirring up hate or incitement to hatred. Um, But there aren't so such things as hate speech laws. But what's interesting, when we think about um, something like the Racial and Religious Hatred Act and the Public Order Act, which do contain those provisions to restrict speech on the grounds of Hatred. Um, actually, some of those con- some of those considerations are also falling into something like the Communications Act. So, if you think of the case of Count Dankula, when the judge was was summing up, one of the findings was that it was felt that that involved hatred towards Jews, but the prosecution wasn't under if you like, traditional hate speech laws, it was under the gross offence laws. And I think that brings us into this question about what do we think are reasonable restrictions? Because gross offence, for example, is hugely subjective and I think does lead us down a path where people will have their speech unreasonably restricted for making remarks that one section of the population might find offensive but don't cause demonstrable harm
0: yeah and and i think and let's dig into count dankula because i <laughs> because i think the, the twitter joke trial is an example of a, I, I think an obvious wrong prosecution it shouldn't have ever been prosecuted it was obviously a joke the judge that the cps didn't understand twitter and it was a new it was a, bit, a relatively new medium and and that's a kind of that in a way that's a comfortable case and i think count dankula is an uncomfortable case because here is a guy who puts a video on youtube of um of his making teaching his pug or his girlfriend's pug how to do nazi salutes while every time he says "gas the jews and he is a I probably what you'd describe as an edgy alt-right comedian um, i think it's probably fair to say he's If you look at his output, it sort of skirts the line uh, quite often, as the alt-right people do, between what looks pretty straightforwardly as religious or racial hatred, what is what might, in other circumstances, be called comedy, and how do you police those boundaries? That's what's really that's what's really difficult about that case. So, so what what's the why is that something? Why is that prosecution wrong or right?
1: So we would argue that the gross offence element of the Communications Act ought to be removed because it is so hugely subjective and gross offence to, to, if you think about, let's go back to thinking about Article 10 and, and the reasonable restrictions. So we at Index on Censorship would argue that really speech only ought to be restricted when there's risk of imminent um danger to an individual resulting from that speech so that's the kind of lock test right? The lock test. Is, 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 so is incitement, risk of harm yeah risk of harm incitement to violence but but particularly um we have to think about that as you know serious harm as opposed to hurt feelings for example and this is where we often get into gray areas because how you define harm becomes crucial in this in this discussion but we can, I think, put that to one side in let, this let, case. Let's come
0: back to that and come back to that because I think that's, that's, because, that's, an think that's question. because
1: I think the question of harm becomes absolutely pertinent when you're thinking about um, incitement to hatred or stirring up hatred. But in that particular case, what I think is problematic is there is that is the proving of harm to a particular individual you can say it is grossly offensive of course it is grossly offensive to a very large number of people Um, but whether or not it has caused harm I think is deeply questionable
0: And, and you don't need to prove harm to be convicted all you need to be all you need to do under that law is say something that a judge or a jury think are grossly offensive on, on, on a public communications network. That's it.
1: Absolutely. And if you think about gross offence, how do we establish a standard or a norm for that? So what one, one judge might consider to be grossly offensive may be vastly different to another, and it will change hugely over time also. So, so these things are very much about the society in which they are being tested.
0: Yeah. Or, the, t- or the, the moment in that society.
1: Precisely. So if yeah. there's a particularly heightened moment where we are feeling particularly sensitive about the treatment of one community or another, you may tackle the same offense very differently six months to 12 months down the line. So I think that is the greatest challenge with this is that if we are going to restrict people's free expression and we've talked about why free expression is so important, then I think there has to be a very, very high threshold for proving that your speech has caused some kind of harm that makes it worthy of being restricted. And I think in this case, to me, though though I agree that teaching your dog or your girlfriend's dog to do a Nazi salute every time gas is used is offensive, I don't think that's funny, grossly offensive, is that speech that should be restricted? No, I don't think so.
0: Isn't one of the the real issues about this law that Count Dankula highlighted is that people have a very different understanding of what's funny?
1: Of course. And again, I come back to this question about sub- subjectivity. While gross offence is subjective, comedy is subjective also. So what people find funny, what people laugh at is hugely, is widely different. And in fact, interestingly, when you think about the ways in which Law has evolved in the UK over time. in many um, uh, in many aspects, we have put in carve outs to protect comedy and satire, to protect the rights of people to say things that may hurt the feelings of others because we consider the ability to mock, to uh, laugh at as a fundamental t- and, to and to offend as fundamentally. so, so i think in and you get to i think yes so offense is interesting because i think that really gets to the heart of it when we when we get confused about what we do and have the the you don't have a right not to be offended you don't you don't have a right not to be offended Um, and in fact that's been considered in a number of courts including in the european court where Judges have said in the past the right to free expression includes the right to shock, offend, or disturb.
0: And, and I and think. And that comes out of um, Handicide and the UK, which was a very interesting case about a little red school book, which, the, which the, I think that the, the, it, it was actually decided in the UK's favour. They banned a, a little red school book that I think had taught children um about sex and but what came out that most important as sometimes happens with with legal cases even though the the person who made the book lost the principle that came out of it of this freedom to offend shock and disturb being included in or fundamental to the right to free expression is what kind of comes down the ages and it's decades old now that case
1: but th- what's interesting about that is though we have that ruling that demonstrates quite clearly that freedom the freedom to offend is protected if you like yet we continue to have a crime of gross offense on the books and that seems to me to send out a very uh, confusing message to people about why and how we should protect freedom of expression so in other words when we think about restrictions, we have to think very carefully about why we are restricting the speech. And I come back down to this point where we ought to be thinking about restrictions in terms of where they are causing demonstrable harm, measurable harm. And I think when you start to look at expanding offenses so that they include things like offense, what you're not you don't have to demonstrate harm, you just have to have somebody's opinion that that's offensive to justify quite swinging restrictions on another individual's
0: free speech. So, so let, let's talk about harm and and we've got the, something called the harm principle I mentioned Locke before and there's also Mill, but there's this idea that free speech is the lifeblood of democracy. And that you only, you must keep it flowing because you don't know what ideas are right or wrong at any given time. As history tells us over and over and over again, see Galileo. And the question then becomes, if you're only going to restrict speech on the basis of its causes harm, how do you define harm?
1: This to me is the absolute crux of the challenges that we face when talking about the defense of free speech, particularly in the modern world. So you're right, traditionally, free speech advocates have looked to the defenses of free expression that have come from philosophers and thinkers like John Stuart Mill, who who thought about how you should and when you should restrict free speech. And Mill talks about the importance of of being able even to say things that are wrong because then they collide with correct ideas and then then they become more exposed, but also talks about instances in which you might think about restricting it. So for example, standing outside somebody's house and advocating for individuals to be harmed in some way or hurt in some way or, or saying, you know, all... Corn merchants are terrible. While standing outside the corn merchant's house in front of a baying mob, could cause an imminent risk of harm. So that's a legitimate reason for restricting it. Shouting, shouting fire, fire. in a crowded theatre is is the traditional example given in the U.S. example. So that's that's famously one of the restrictions that's talked about as being allowed uh, when talking about where the restrictions are placed in the United States. Is given an ex- as an example. The challenge is in in those cases. What Mill and others were talking about was the, thinking about things as violence. So the idea that if you if you start to incite people's anger and they're already carrying large sticks, then the likelihood that they then go out and and batter the person in the house is is highly likely. And so he was thinking much more about sort of direct violence resulting physical violence. But as we have evolved as a society, we've started to think about harm in a different way. So we've become much more understanding of psychological harm, for example. And that, I think, has become a challenge for us as free speech advocates that we don't talk about enough, actually, because people have started to think about harm in a different way. And so when we talk about stirring up offences, for example, we're thinking about whether or not saying negative things, racist, you know, racist speech, anti-Semitic speech, causes harm to an individual or is likely to cause harm to that group because it causes people to think about them or treat them in a different way. Unfortunately, often we have looked to law to try and identify that and measure it in some way in ways that I think end up negatively restricting speech. Um, but that is where we, that is how we have got to some of these other laws which restrict free expression, because it, it envisages harm in quite a different way.
0: And, and, that's, and that, as you say, is, is the crux of, of the issue. And, 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 I, and the way, it, I mean, in law, if you do something negligent and you cause somebody a psychiatric injury, which is identified by a psychiatrist, so typically PTSD from a road traffic accident, you have to pay that person. Um, you have to pay out for that. That's seen as, that is just as much harm in the law as breaking their arm. As long as you can get the, the psychiatrist to di- diagnose it. But but what we see with speech is a lot of talk of um you know um, microaggressions, this kind of, and and I don't want to parody it because I think there's some, you know, it's it's very easy to say, oh well that's just you know, all the, the snowflake narrative. But there is this point of if you um if you say something which is deeply offensive to somebody's something about some some inherent characteristic of somebody you might actually cause them psychiatric harm if it's in public if it's seen by lots of people if it's a sort of public shaming and that that seems to be a really difficult question in relation to free speech
1: it's a hugely difficult question and it's hugely difficult for a number of reasons so the first is is the I suppose what you might call the burden of proof or the subjectivity of it because what what might be to one person extremely harmful language said once may be to somebody else not considered as such. And so for a court to be able to test whether or not that's actually caused harm is very difficult. So actually in most of these cases you don't have to prove that. It's simply enough to be considered to be stirring up hatred Towards. You don't have to actually prove that that's had a measurable and damaging effect on an individual, the individual concerned. So that then places a great deal of burden on law enforcement, for example, to be able to assess whether the language is likely to stir up hatred towards a particular group of individuals and potentially place restrictions on that individual that are not reasonable. So if you take the example of a street preacher, for example, so in the UK, individuals are allowed to preach religious texts or religious viewpoints on the street. However, some of the viewpoints expressed when individuals are doing so may also be considered to be, for example, homophobic. And so we have seen cases in which preachers and others have been arrested for, under, for example, the Public Order Act, under the stirring up offence, for for a stirring up offence, because though they are allowed to preach their religious views, what they're saying is considered to be homophobic or denigrating of another religion or another race. And that's where we come into this clash between whose whose rights get protected because we fought very hard for religious freedom to be a protected to be protected in the UK and for us to be able to express our religious views so what does the law do in the case where that religious view is is essentially
0: outlawed can we talk about um gay cake and compelled speech yeah um I mean, the, 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 so, so so just to give the, the very brief background, um, in, in Northern Ireland, there was a bakery owned by um, by Catholic bakers. Um, well, they were Catholics who were bakers. And two um, men went into the bakery and said, can you bake us this cake, which was a cake with a picture of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street saying um, "some c- celebrate gay marriage, something like that. And the bakers said, no, it's, it doesn't accord with our Christian belief. And they um, they failed in their... Discri- so so they, they, a discrimination case under Northern Irish law was brought against them and they failed up to the Court of Appeal. And then the Supreme Court reversed it and said, actually, what was going on here was compelled speech. Um, what's compelled speech and how does it fit into this sort of paradigm? So compelled
1: speech, essentially... It- involves me telling you that you must say something that you do not believe. So in this case, it hinged really on the fact that the, the writing and the exp- expression on the cake, in other words, the bakers were being asked to say something that they did not Believe
0: Or say something through the medium of cake.
1: Yes. This is a really interesting case because, again, comes back to where different laws intersect with one another. And I think, again, this is something that we often forget. So we do have the Equality Act in this country, which is the act that sets out the ways in which individuals are protected from discrimination and harassment and so on. And so on the one hand, employers are obliged to provide services, except in very certain circumstances to everyone, regardless of gender, race, and so on. There are some some very specific carve for example, for, for women's services, refuges, and so on. But in general, if I go into a baker, the baker ought to sell me a cake, whether or not I am gay, heterosexual, black white muslim jewish atheist okay so so that is the that is how the case was brought essentially to say well i was not served a cake because i was a gay person but actually in fact and this is why it it's i talk about expression the the writing part is important or the actual expression that was being asked but actually the response to that was it's not that we didn't want to serve you because you were a gay person it's that we we would have happily served you a cake as a as a gay couple we would have sold you a cake but we are not prepared to write and 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 use the expression that you force us to because it is anti counter to our beliefs
0: yeah and and they would have done the same they would have said the same to anybody regardless of their sexual orientation or religion or, or whatever the point was they wouldn't have baked that cake for anybody and i think that's what the, that's why the supreme court said it's not discrimination it, in in that sense it is um a compelled speech which is an american concept that they've 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 imported
1: but it seems and it seems trivial it, almost you, you might think well why is everybody arguing about cake this is this is ridiculous i know we've spent a lot of time watching um bake off and we've become a bit cake obsessed but actually this is a trivial thing but actually it's a really important principles on both sides one which is that we do have the equality act which is absolutely vital people should be protected from being discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or their religious background or their race that's absolutely vital we, it's essential that we have that in place On the other hand, it's also essential that we have free expression protections that protect not just our ability to express ourselves, and particularly in this day and age where I think political expression is increasingly under threat, and that's something maybe we can talk about after, but also that they're not compelled to say something that they do not believe. Because if you think about it, we talked earlier about authoritarian regimes, that too is the hallmark of authoritarianism is is individuals or indeed states or groups compelling other groups to say things that they do not believe and protecting our ability to speak our own truths is really important
0: can we talk about the press um, for 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 a bit? Because I think the press, the press have a sort of special or a special category in the, in this in this area, aren't they? And we I like it, to index, think so, <laughs> and, and, and not necessarily because they've got more protections, but they are seen as a particular, well, uh, certainly traditionally, a, a location for freedom of speech. Is that, so? How are the f- press protected?
1: In a number of circumstances, there are specific carve outs for press or for journalists for example so in for in terrorism law for example you often find specific protections introduced that will allow journalists to access what would otherwise be considered terrorist content that other people would be prosecuted for accessing or sharing there are carve outs to protect journalists and, and we just
0: had that didn't we with We'd, the that, times that's just and been, Begum.
1: Yeah. so that just so those those protections there are some specific protections that exist to protect a free
0: press, the police tried to get the transcripts of the interviews which a Times journalist did in Syria with Shamima Begum, who is a, I guess, probably fairly describes a terrorist suspect, um, who went to fight with ISIS um, and was a very prominent case. And the court said no. The court said no. Journalist source is sacrosanct. We're not. G- Presumably, this is what they said we're not giving you the sort we're not giving you the transcripts even though it might be important for national security
1: and that largely holds but it can be contested so for example last year two northern irish journalists were arrested over a documentary that they made about a massacre in 1996 i think it was in a in a pub uh, in northern ireland that and the documentary alleged collusion between the security services and the killers. Now, instead of the police then going after the, the people who were identified in this documentary as being responsible potentially for this killing, in fact, the two journalists were arrested and their and their homes and their offices raided. They were put on quite stringent bail conditions, so it was very difficult for them to travel. And it took nearly a year for that case to be overturned. And one of the important principles that I think was stressed during that case was what it is that police can reasonably demand in terms of evidence from journalists so we have something called production orders where um, the police can say we want you to give us material that we think relates to a crime being committed but there are there are quite strict rules around reasonable suspicion how much notice you're allowed to give that I think are quite regularly unfortunately in the UK at the moment being flouted so I think it's really important that we understand why laws are crafted with particular restrictions that that create a very high threshold before you can start to demand information for journalists. Because journalists, protection of journalist sources is absolutely crucial. Many of the big stories that have broken down the line that tell us important things about the way in which government is spending our money, the way in which government is um, using our armed forces have come through individuals who couldn't have spoken openly because they would have almost immediately been fired or in fact been breaking the Official Secrets Act who have gone to journalists with that information and the protection of those sources is really key.
0: And, uh, but it, but there's a limit and, and I think that that's a... Let's talk about the limits on journalists, or, or, or put it another way, that the flip side of the journalists being protected is they have certain responsibilities and legal duties. So what are those, where does that come come to sharp focus in terms of what journalists can't do?
1: It comes into focus in areas such as court reporting, for example. So for for very good reasons, there are all sorts of restrictions that come in the way in which we report What's happening in courts to protect witnesses, for example, to make sure that juries can carry out their duties without um, undue influence from other information. So, so...
0: And that would be something like the uh, the headline in the newspaper saying halfway through a trial, guilty. He's yes. Ob- he's obviously guilty. And even if they were you know using their best efforts like judges tell them to do to avoid the press, it's quite difficult to walk past a load of headlines that say guilty and precisely not think, that's and not exactly think guilty. the
1: kind of restriction and And yeah. as a journalist, um you know I'm a trained journalist. One of the things that y- you'll talk very early on is to read through your media law guide so that you know very well what are the restrictions. Unfortunately, in this country, there are very few restrictions on the press, and the restrictions that exist largely, are to protect other areas such as justice being efficiently and properly served. Sometimes journalists are unfairly restricted and would often then go back and argue, for example, their ability to report somebody's name. So that often gets uh, contested and discussed and, and the judge may find that in fact, actually they will allow a newspaper, for example, to report someone's name. Generally, for example, you're not allowed to report minors' names. For example, if they're involved in a crime, but judges may grant exceptional circumstances where the press might be allowed to print that names, and and those things are often negotiated. But those restrictions they're they're
0: negotiated, but but by way of a sort of formal process. By way of a formal process in order to
1: protect. And you know, freedom of expression, to me, as I've said, is the bedrock of democracy. There are other pillars that are essential to democracy and obviously justice is one of those and 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 the need for for the judiciary to be able to do its work effectively and so while we don't welcome limits on the press in general there are some restrictions that we see as being necessary for other elements of democracy to flourish effectively it's not an unreasonable restriction for example to suggest that you shouldn't be publishing damaging information about an individual midway through the trial that might affect the outcome of the trial because otherwise justice is not being properly served
0: one of the issues which again from social media has arisen is there are now a lot more journalists or at least there's a lot more people describing themselves as citizen journalists so people who you in, in in the past wouldn't just simply wouldn't have had, had access to any kind of method of dissemination. Now have big platforms which they develop for no for, for no cost. Um, and the most obvious recent example is Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley Lennon is his real name. So he describes himself as a journalist. He was standing outside of courts court of a of a trial involving a grooming gang, a, a group of men who were grooming um, children for sexual acts. And were ultimately convicted, and he was standing outside. Um, and he said reporting, but he was convicted of uh, contempt of court. Can you just sort of explain how that happened?
1: Well, because he was in con- <laughs> he was in contempt of court because he was reporting things that the uh, judge, as I understand it, had said should not be reported. I mean, reporting matters that should not have been reported, and no other journalist reported those elements.
0: And the the judge didn't just say that. He he ordered it. Yes. So he put it there was a formal court order in place.
1: So no other journalists reported those things. And and describing yourself as a journalist or as a free speech warrior or whatever is not a is not a some sort of magic protection from the law. If I as a journalist went to court to report on something and the court had ordered that an element shouldn't be reported, if I then did that I would be breaking the law now in very exceptional circumstances you might argue that a journalist may decide that there are absolute huge public interests there's huge public interest value uh, in reporting a particular element but in general journalists understand that alongside journalism as a as a key element of democracy the effective functioning of our court system and our justice system is also important and therefore accept that legal restrictions on the reporting within as I've said quite tight limits are acceptable now there are elements when that gets challenged so Other restrictions that we haven't talked about on speech include things like defamation and libel laws. So in other words, there are protections that exist in law if I defame you. If I say something about you that is untrue, um, either verbally or in writing, you have an opportunity to seek redress. And uh, quite often, people in positions of power will abuse those pieces of law to try and prevent journalists reporting on their private lives or their political dealings or their business dealings. And so quite often media organisations or journalists will find themselves in court having to argue for why why they should be able to publish that information.
0: Yeah, why it's in the public interest. Why it's
1: in the public interest. And, and
0: I guess the, 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 the there was a series of cases around super injunctions, about fo- mostly about football, sports people having affairs, that were binding to the whole world but then those are the most re- the most recent case was about Philip Green um allegedly a- a- abusing people in his organization and his identity was restricted until the press said actually it's in the public interest not to restrict it and they won
1: and my point really is that it's not being a journalist is not a defense against breaking the law it's perfectly possible as a journalist to argue against restrictions on publishing because it is in the public interest and and media organizations frequently do because as I say people in positions of power and authority will often try and abuse the law to prevent journalists and media outlets from publishing information that is in our public interest but on its own I am a media organisation. I am a journalist. Is not a defence in. Is not a, a defence on its own in law.
0: It goes back to principles in, in, in the end, and I suppose this brings us full circle. It's those human rights principles. You know what? What? What is the public interest in free speech? And journalists are in the public interest zone. So if something's not in the public interest, it doesn't fall under necessarily under their, the ju- protection of journalists.
1: And it's also why actually. Though I think there should be as few <laughs> limits on free expression as possible, it's really important that, that those things are tested in the court of law ultimately rather than by fiat from government or by social media mob, for example. That, that, that's where those tight questions about harm about public interest that's where they ought to be negotiated and debated and agreed not in either the court of public opinion or much worse in sort of diktat from on high where a state simply rules that certain kinds of content or information simply won't be allowed
0: yeah Um, and i suppose the final example that about that restrictions on journalists that i was thinking of was julian assange so this isn't about court reporting this is about national security so Julian Assange is currently facing extradition for um to the United States for espionage so for releasing uh, diplomatic cables which supposedly uh, broke the law which allegedly caused harm to um to the, the the American security services now this is a talk about social media um arguments this is what was the most fiercely defended and 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 um litigated issue out there is Julian Assange a, a, a free speech warrior who is protecting the public interest or is he a irresponsible um charlatan who is actually damaging national security although at the same time doing some things which are which are in the public interest
1: i think in his particular case and on this particular charge is so on this particular charge, which relates to encouraging another individual to share secret information. That is what journalists do all the time. Good journalists are trying to find information that other people want to keep secret often because they want to protect their own interests. That's what good journalists do. So on on those particular charges, It's really concerning that we end up in this discussion about whether Julian Assange was a good person or a bad person or a journalist or not a journalist. In my view, that's irrelevant. We should be looking at whether... Bad people
0: can be good journalists.
1: Of course. Um, And good journalists can be bad people. But the important thing is to look at is whether the charges that he's being... Um, pursued for relates to journalistic activity. In my view, they absolutely do, and we should be really concerned because if it's, if he is indeed extradited and if he's indeed found guilty, then any journalist engaging in conversations with individuals who are privy to secret information that is in the public interest. And there are many elements of the work that he did that certainly meets that category will be found guilty. And that's got to worry us as a society because the work of journalists is to inform us of things that we need to know to be able to function as full and engaged citizens.
0: I mean, we we could talk forever about this because it really does highlight and bring into focus some of the most important issues out there for everybody. Um but we're going to wind up and and I wanted to ask you for three human rights things that have inspired you and that can be anything from a case to a book to a film to a person to an event um, but just something which is going to help people who are interested in this issue um, to to go further.
1: So I would talk about three formative areas of my life. So my father is South African so I grew up when in the UK but a time when South Africa was obviously under an apartheid regime and obviously for me the experiences of Nelson Mandela and the approach of Nelson Mandela which always looks at being able to talk to your enemy is absolutely inspirational. The idea that you should be able to converse and sit down with your enemy has been to me absolutely key in thinking about why free expression is important but also how you can approach negotiating with with people whom you fundamentally disagree with and who've, who've been persecuting you for a long time so he would be the first obviously i also take inspiration from um an oft quoted and i think overused and something i know adam you've talked about before but the the pasta Um, poem which talks about first they came for which relates to the holocaust but it is really an exhortation for us to think about how we can think about others so for me human rights is not thinking about your own interest first it's thinking about why it's important to put yourself in the position of other people um, and never assume ultimately that you might not be that person and I think particularly in this current climate people increasingly thinking about that people who thought that perhaps they would never face persecution suddenly finding themselves in that position and why it's that's important and then I think the third one for me it's in top of mind actually because this week her new book came out the testament so Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale is really powerful in my life because I think it's a reminder that Worlds that we think about as being fictional and far away can often end up being true in real life. And so we should always imagine the worst case scenario in order to be able to fight for the best case scenario. So, as a freedom is, as I say, hard won, um, but easily lost. And we have to be able to imagine that it will be lost so that we continue to fight for it now.
0: Those are three absolutely brilliant choices. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Jody Ginsberg, who's the CEO of Index on Censorship. How can people find out more about Index?
1: Come on our website, indexoncensorship.org, and you'll find out lots of ways to engage with our work and support us.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you thanks so much to my guest Jody Ginsberg from Index on Censorship I thought it was a really interesting discussion um, just to remind you you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash better human follow Be Human podcast on Twitter email me adam at better with any comments or suggestions for future episodes and To remind you, the podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB law undergraduate course taught in London. Goldsmiths has open days on Saturday the 5th of October and Wednesday the 6th of November where you can meet their law academics and find out more about studying their law programme. Until next time, thanks very much. This has been the Better Human Podcast.